welcome to the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. It is Monster Kid Radio, and I am your writer, host, and producer, Derek M. Cook. Welcome to the show, and welcome to the show, The Surfer Jets. That's the music we're playing this week. Courtesy of High Tide Recordings, The Surfer Jets is a surf band based out of Toronto, Ontario. I really like them, and I've been wanting to play them on the show for a very long time. This is their brand new Halloween single, Banshee Bop. You can pick it up for two bucks for yourself over at thesurfrajets.bandcamp.com or follow the link in the show notes when you're done listening to this episode of Monster Kid Radio, of course. Whenever you do check them out, they'll let them know that you heard about them here on Monster Kid Radio. And what's happening this week on Monster Kid Radio? More of what you love, and by that I mean more beta capsule review from Mark Madsky. Still enjoying Ultra 7. 7. 7. I know I say I'll never do it. 7. I know I say I'll never do that again, but I, I, I can't help it. It's it's just one of those things. Plus, Kenny's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. He's all Halloween-y this time around. Well, as we all should be. It's October. It's the most magical time of the year, darn it. So yeah, let's get into the Halloween spirit. And one thing that puts me into the Halloween spirit is the H.P. Lovecraft film festival and Cthulhu Con. So, I have a long history with the Lovecraft Film Festival in that when I first moved to the Portland, Oregon area, I didn't go the first year that I was here. I didn't really know too much about it. I was still kind of finding my footing in town, that sort of thing. But the following year I went and I had a grand old time. I had a blast. And until the pandemic, I went every single year, whether it was in October or they did it earlier in the year when they were kind of transitioning between uh, directors and all that. I went all the time. I loved it. And over the course of my time going to the Lovecraft Film Festival, my, I don't know if you'd call it status, but whatever you call what I do, who I am changed in that I started as a fan, then a filmmaker, then a writer, then it's just a podcaster guy, and and now I, I don't even really know where I'm at anymore. I'm on a weird journey, which you can follow over on my YouTube channel, Monster Kid Writer. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes, or just look up Monster Kid Writer on YouTube. Anyway, I, I just, I'm on a weird journey, still trying to figure out a few things, and the Lovecraft thing has always been a constant. Unfortunately, because of the pandemic... They didn't do it live. They had some online stuff. And then last year they did a limited version of the Lovecraft Film Festival that I just, I didn't go to. You know, I couldn't afford it. Um, there are just a lot of other things going on in my life. I, I just, I didn't go. And I had forgotten how much I missed it. Now, this time around, because I'm working two jobs this October, I was not able to go to everything that I wanted to go to, which is probably for the best, you know, while it was still a mask-required event and that sort of thing. I still worry about being out in public and that sort of thing, you know, especially up here where there do seem to be little mini-outbreaks and, and unconfirmed spreader events happening off and on. Anyway, I, I didn't go to the whole thing. In fact, I only sat through one and a half shorts blocks. Uh, the shorts blocks are the collection of short films they show, and they had six of them, which is insane. I saw some feature films, and they were feature films that I had seen before, but they were showing Reanimator, Bride of Reanimator, and Night of the Comet in 35mm, and Jeffrey Combs and Kelly Maroney were there. So, you know, I did sit through those and enjoyed myself for the most part. 
and then I only did one panel. I was supposed to do two. I was supposed to be a guest on a Cthulhu in Comics panel, which would have been a lot of fun. Moderated by my friend and friend of the show, David Heath, man. And, you know, it just would have been a blast to do that. Unfortunately, I had a job interview pop up and I had to go do that instead. So I only did the one panel. Fortunately, it was the panel that I was moderating Lovecraft's favorite films. Now, I've not listened to the audio of this. It was kind of done old school for the Lovecraft Film Festival in that we did not take over the senior center across the street. Pandemic, endemic, and all that, you know, and I totally get it. In years past, we've taken over the senior center across the street from the Hollywood Theater, rechristened it the Esoteric Order of Dagon for the weekend, and that's where all the panels were held. And they had always done a really good job about making sure that place was mic'd up really well. They had audio, they had all sorts of stuff set up, and in years past, I've even been able to hook my recorder directly into the mixing board so that the audio quality was spot on. Mm. This time around, it was, let's just put a bunch of people up on stage sitting in folding chairs and give them some handheld microphones. Well, you know, as people get talking, and I'm sure I'm guilty of it myself, you get excited and you forget that you've got a microphone that you need to hold in front of your face. You know, we weren't sitting at a table with microphones on stands or whatever. So, yeah, the audio quality is probably a little bit more old school than I've done in the past when covering Lovecraft events. However... I think the content was fun. The conversation was fun. I had a good time chatting with my fellow panelists, who included Chris McMillan from The Shadow Over Portland, Andrew Migliori, the founder of the Lovecraft Film Festival, Ken Height, who's been on the show before, author and game designer, Scott Glancy, who is also a game designer and I've never had on the show proper. In fact, I haven't had Andrew on the show proper either, which is something we're going to correct in the near future. I'll talk about that at the end. Anyway, it was the four of us Okay, that's four panelists. Okay, four plus me as the moderator. And it was a blast. I had a really good time, and I hope you enjoy it too. The crowd for the Lovecraft Film Festival is not the same as the crowd for Monster Kid Radio. There's a lot of overlap, but I try to keep Monster Kid Radio pretty family-friendly. I don't like having to click the explicit tag. I think I have to hit the explicit tag this time around. Just as a heads up, some of the conversation got a little fast and loose. Just saying and consider yourself forewarned if that's a problem. Anyway, I know I've given you a lot of preamble here. Why don't we go ahead and get into the show? Let's go to Mark, let's go to Kenny, and let's go to Lovecraft right after this. Ichiro's legs flew into the air. His tiger-striped board sailed over his head, and a wall of blue water crashed down on him, trying to crush the air out of his lungs. For a moment, he found himself head down in the water column, with a surge of the wave pushing him toward the azure depths below. Somehow, he managed to hold on to the GoPro during the wipeout, but now the camera clenched in his fist kept him from easily righting himself. As he writhed in the deep, a dark shape loomed up out of the blue. In Monster Shark on a Nude Beach, a shy marine biologist must up his game and stop a series of shark attacks at the Caribbean's most famous clothing optional playground. Award-winning author Stephen D. Sullivan brings you this sexy, action-packed summer read, perfect for fans of The Meg and Jaws. Read three chapters free on Amazon. Find out more at buffbeach.com or sdsullivan.com. Opens its horror vault to release. 
three macabre masterpieces. Bela Lugosi as Count Dracula, Lord High Priest of the Living Dead, begins a legend of fear as he claims the soul of his first victim with the mark of the vampire. Boris Karloff as the evil Fu Manchu, his passion for power twisting his brilliant mind as he revels in the horrors of human sacrifice and torture. Behind the mask of Fu Manchu. Frederick Marsh as the futuristic experimenter, Dr. Jekyll, using chemistry to expand his mind. Delving into the taboos of the unnatural. To free the primitive, savage, murderer, Mr. Hyde, in the screen's first classic portrayal of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Bela Lugosi, Mark of the Vampire. Boris Karloff, The Mask of Fu Manchu. Frederick March. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Torture. Terror. Taboo. Together in a triple trip to the time when terror began. Now from MGM. Three immortal horrors never seen on the little screen. Live from the land of light in Nebula M78, home of the mighty Ultra Heroes, it's Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review. The courageous battle at the heart of Ultra 7, episode 38, is one being fought on many fronts. The Ultra Guard is summoned when cars begin disappearing from roadways enveloped in an unusual fog. Meanwhile, Dan attempts to encourage a boy named Osamu, who is in need of delicate heart surgery. A Swiss doctor is being flown into Japan specifically for the procedure, but Osamu refuses to consent to the operation unless Dan is present, so Dan agrees. Anne Yuri and Osamu's sister pick up the doctor at the airport to accompany him to the hospital, but are alarmed when fog starts to enshroud the highway. The UltraGuard arrives to provide air support, and dispersing the fog, they witness a giant robot picking automobiles off the expressway and effectively swallowing them. They can only watch in horror as the robot snatches the car holding Anne and the doctor, that is, until Dan's aircraft crash lands, giving him the opportunity to become Ultra 7 and save the day. However, when the Ultra Guard regroups and hatches an ingenious plan to destroy the robot, it becomes increasingly doubtful that Dan will be able to fulfill his promise to Osamu. 
especially when the robotic menace withstands their bombing operation and cuts a path toward the city hospital. The courageous battle is tremendously satisfying, weaving together two compelling storylines that feature a wealth of imaginative special effects. The human drama of Osamu's battle against fear and Dan's heroic efforts to assist the young man make this an especially heartfelt episode, hearkening back to the original Ultraman series in tone and spirit. Of course, the appearance of alien Banda's car-consuming robot Crazy Gun is a welcome development, as are not one but two sequences in which Ultra 7 takes action, in one case on an inventively miniature level. The icing on the cake consists of a few subtle touches that remind the viewer that Anne possesses authentic feelings for Dan that she never articulates directly, though they seem somewhat obvious to the rest of the team. These details, though fleeting, add up over the course of 49 episodes to create characters worth caring about, giving a needed bit of realism to the often outlandish proceedings. For Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review, this is Mark Matsky reporting. Centronics International presents a terrifying journey into the supernatural, narrated by the master of slithering evil, Rod Serling. It is tradition that ghosts and ghouls and various other citizens of the grotesque wrap themselves in malevolent mists and deep darkness, disguised as all manner of things. This is a terrifying encounter with the unknown. spun by devils. Encounter with the unknown. It's his night to howl. Dracula's dog, the meanest vampire of them all, has a four-legged friend and he's out for blood. Crown International Pictures presents Dracula's dog. Whoops, there he goes again. There's more to the legend than meets the throat in Dracula's dog. Rated R, under 17, not admitted without parent. 20th Century Fox invites you to join the boys and girls of Sigma Phi for their annual New Year's Eve party. This year is a masquerade on wheels, and the person behind you could be your best friend or the last person you see on Earth. Experience the most terrifying ride of your life on the Terror Train, rated R. Starts October 3rd at a selected theater near you. The The one. one. The only, the classic, Halloween. I think he'll come back. Halloween, the night he came home. Rated R. Hello there, Monster Kid Radioheads. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland.
Today we are going to continue our celebration of Halloween with a look at the second part of a trilogy that takes place during this fall holiday. The first part escaped FM's attention, but they jumped on the bandwagon for part two. It appeared in the same issue we saw last week, FM 179 from 1981. The article was five pages long with seven photos. Let's hear what it had to say. Jack O'Lantern or Jack the Ripper? All Hallows' Eve, 1978. From the screen we hear a haunting voice. Black cats and goblins and broomsticks and ghosts. Covens of witches that bother their hosts. You may think they scare me. You're probably right. Black cats and goblins on Halloween night. Trick or treat! As the excited voices of shrill laughter of prankish children echo through the darkened streets and byways of the sleepy town of Haydenfield, a hideous slaughter is taking place. The malicious murder of his own sister by six-year-old Michael Myers. For 15 years, Michael is confined in the Warren County Mental Health Hospital. And then, at 21, on Halloween night, he escapes and goes home. That was a heart-stopping scenario for Halloween the most successful independent production of all time. It was a low-budget, high-quality film which brought three relative unknowns to the forefront of their crafts. Actress Jamie Lee Curtis, The Fog, Prom Night, Terror Train, Road Games, and co-producers John Carpenter and Deborah Hill. The Fog, Escape from New York. Once again, this terrific trio has teamed up, or conspired, truth to tell, and on October 31st, we'll confront squirming audiences all over the country with Halloween 2, perhaps the most anxiously awaited sequel since The Empire Strikes Back. As a sequel, Halloween 2 employs a unique concept, seldom utilized since The Bride of Frankenstein in 1935. It begins at the very moment the original concluded. Co-producer writer Deborah Hill explained the unusual format while at a sound session in Hollywood. What we've done is overlap the ending of Halloween with the beginning of the sequel. Halloween 2 opens with Laurie Strode, Jamie Lee Curtis, telling the children she's been babysitting to run down the street and get help. Then, if you remember, the shape sits up in the background and attacks again. Just as Dr. Loomis, Donald Pleasance, burst into the scene. He shoots the shape six times, knocked him off the balcony and onto the ground below only to later find out that the shape has disappeared. This is the point where the storyline of Halloween 2 begins. The article continues with a synopsis of the film. In the middle of the story, we find these interesting facts. The special effects for Halloween 2 are greatly enhanced by the use of Dolby sound, a technique not used in the original. This improvement, combined with the extraordinary color quality achieved in the outdoor night scenes, make Halloween 2 a technically superior film. The synopsis continues but stops short of spoiling the ending. The article concludes like this. Dr. Loomis has made a startling discovery, which climaxes in the film's trick ending. It really is a treat. What is it, you ask? You can find out on October 31st, Halloween night, the night he comes home, and the night Halloween 2 opens nationwide. In addition to Halloween 2, Horror film aficionados will be treated to an October 31st network telecast of the original Halloween, which will include new scenes filmed by John Carpenter, especially for Terror Vision. That is all for this week's spooky look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. We will have more next week. For MKR, this is Kenny saying adios.
something is moving in the fog. Who's there? Something not quite human. Who is that? In Halloween, John Carpenter created a night of absolute fear. Now, he has conjured an evil so intense, not even the dawn can drive it away. The Fog, a study in unrelenting terror. Rated R. These are the girls of Hamilton High. Tonight, they'll be more beautiful than ever before in their lives. Because tonight is prom night. And someone will come to the prom alone just to watch them dance, to see them fall in love, to see them die. Prom night. If you're not back by midnight, you won't be coming home. Rated R. Are you ready? Oh, well, let's give it up to our tech people. Thank you, tech people. All right. So uh, we are here for a panel called Lovecraft's Favorite Films. And uh, before we get into everything, I just want to kind of go down the list, let people introduce themselves here. Uh, I am the moderator, Derek M. Cook, and I am a multi-award winning, long-running podcaster here in town. I produce the Monster Kid Radio podcast. Um, been podcasting for over a decade, and uh, I just I love film, and specifically I love classic film. So uh, yeah, this was sometimes that'd be fun to chat with with some other fellow film and Lovecraft fans. Sir, okay. Uh, uh, my name is Scott Glancy. Um, I am a uh, writer who has produced a, a small amount of uh, role playing game and terror related to Call of Cthulhu, and I am just a film fan and a film buff. So. Uh, the uh, diving into the uh, 30s movies that, uh, and, and for that matter, 1916 movies, the 20s and 30s films that Mr. Lovecraft enjoyed, um, I'm 100% in for that. Um, I, uh, uh, and it, especially in its pre Hayes code, sadly there's not enough of that in his, in his uh, uh, list of, of films that he enjoyed, but we'll, we'll make do. How odd. Yeah. <laughs> Asexual weirdo, not a Myrtle Loy fan. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> That's one of many strikes against him, let's be honest. Right below the anti-Semitism, right above the eating stale beans, yeah. right in that sweet middle spot. Um, I'm Kenneth Height. I'm a writer and game designer. Uh, I have a podcast with Robin Laws called Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. And uh, from that podcast has sprung Frankenstein-like uh, a audiobook of our horror essentials. So uh, we have a horror cinema essentials audiobook on Bandcamp right now. So go ahead and download five and a half hours of Robin and I covering 135 films from Caligari to, to Annihilation. What is that under on Bandcamp? How do people find it? Uh, Ken and Robin's slash, uh, Bandcamp slash Ken and Robin, I believe. All right, or cool, cool. Check search, it out. Search, search Ken and Robin on Bandcamp, you'll find it. Okay. Uh, I'm Andrew McLeary. I founded the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival. I also wrote a book called The Lurker in the Lobby. Uh, it was Pagan Publishing. Right, what was that? I know. It was Pagan Publishing back in 1990. The day. Actually, remind me and I'll send you a link. Okay. So that's it. Uh, I'm Chris McMillan. I'm the writer and publisher of The Shadow Over Portland, where I do movie reviews, opinion pieces, and most importantly, list all the horror, sci-fi, and fantasy events happening in the Pacific Northwest, at least the ones I can find. Um, the site right now has a Halloween 2022 page, so you can go there and check out all the haunted houses across the Pacific Northwest that I have found so far, or will be added, and you'll find it all at shadowportland.blogspot.com. Excellent. Right on. So, I, I took some of the information we're going to talk about here from some various websites and such, and I did find a website 
that listed 10 different movie theaters that were in the Providence area probably around the time Lovecraft was doing his thing. And I was kind of shocked, actually, that there were 10 movie theaters in Providence, because Rhode Island's a you know, small area. But the theaters were called The Majestic, The Strand, The Emery, The Victory, The RKO Alby, The Phase, The Capital, The Modern, The Uptown Theater, the, and The Bijou Theater, which later became known as The Empire. Uh, this would have been around the time Lovecraft was walking around and doing his thing in Providence. And at one point, he actually worked as a ticket taker at one of these theaters. I have not been able to find out which one. Um, do any of you know what which years? I mean, it days in 1929 to 1930. It, it yeah. was actually probably just early 30. Yeah. Um, uh, this is based on Harry Probst, who was a friend and correspondent of Lovecraft. Mm -hmm. uh, who, and another one of Lovecraft's points saw him uh, walking to the theater and said, hey, what are you doing down here? And he says, I'm going to my job to take tickets to the theater. So uh, we have, you know, everything except Lovecraft's own letters saying that he did it. And it was probably early 1930 when the Depression was really hitting and he needed money to go to Florida. He sure. probably just did it as a, as a as gig economy. <laughs> and, and those letters say that he was both uh, Usher and he was in the ticket box, taking tickets. I, I think that probably what happened is Robst and um, the other guy were guessing. Uh, I do have a quote from Lovecraft in one of his letters in which he states, As you surmise, I am a devotee of the motion picture, since I can attend shows at any time, whereas my Ill, Ill health seldom permits me to make definite engagements or purchase real theater tickets in advance. Some modern films are really worth seeing, though when I first knew moving pictures, their only value was to destroy time. You <laughs> do <laughs> <laughs> you, Lovecraft. <laughs> I found that quote real, really interesting. Um, you sent it in the link you had yeah. with the films. Because most of the films on that list started out as plays. You know, I yeah. think about four or five of them did. Well, and that's kind of indicative of a lot of early Hollywood, too. Is, yeah. is he had a number of uh, plays and, and playwrights moving over to Hollywood or plays being picked up, including some of the you know, most important films for, for me as a monster kid. Uh, and this is relevant to uh, at least one of the movies on the list here. John Balderston was a playwright who... Uh, was responsible for the play version of Dracula and Frankenstein, which is what the Universal films were based on. Uh, so you have that connection there. And uh, the movie Berkeley Square, which is based on a play by John Balderson, um, was one of Lovecraft's favorites. So I, I thought that was kind of neat to see uh, that while Lovecraft may not have ever written specifically, nor I don't know if he ever saw any of the Universal monsters, any of the classic horror monsters that monster movies I've talked about on my podcast, but. It's interesting, at least there's that, that fantastical connection, kind of tangentially. Well, well, we, we know that he did see both Dracula and Frankenstein because True. he slags them off in his letters. And, uh, and The Invisible Man. Right. Do you have a... Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, 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 and, and, and he really liked The Invisible Man. He, oh, good. He actually thought it was uh, fairly creepy here. You know. That's um, great. Well, he, was, he was less than impressed by Wells, so I think the departure from the source material might not have bothered him as much. True. With that. Whereas um, when he reviews Frankenstein, he says... Um, uh, uh, something like my chivalric appreciation for Mrs. Shelley, um, uh, you know, caused me to see red throughout, or something like. That. <laughs> <laughs> but, but didn't he say in that piece like he liked parts of it? Yeah. But, but it, when you compare it to the, the his, you know, because in the uh, the supernatural horror and literature, he wrote about Frankenstein and saying how what a, a classic horror was. So when he's comparing it against that to the film adaptation, it's going to fall short. Sure. And he didn't have a cinematic imagination, which yeah. I think is pretty clear. Mm -hmm. 
But, I mean, when he writes about how things can't be described, that's not very cinematic. He's architecture, not cinema. So. Good point. <laughs> Good point. But yeah, and there's more plays too that you were talking earlier. The, yeah. the Bat um, and Witcher set we were just talking about mm -hmm. too. So and again, those were very popular plays that got converted into films. I have to admit, of all the films on this list, is that this Lovecraft series films, the Winter set is the one that kind of befuddles me the most. Me too. As a <laughs> as a um, you know a film about uh, uh, you know a, a, a rewriting of the Sacco and Vincetti uh, trial where. Uh, Plucky Burgess Meredith, as a uh, Italian immigrant, is going to clear uh, his father uh, John Carradine's name. It's John Carradine's name, but they're all playing, you know, Italian immigrants, you know, who've been <laughs> who've been done over by the American justice system. And I'm like, wait, Lovecraft was cool with Italian immigrants. When did, I know. When I did this happen? Exactly. I had the exact same thing too, and, it, and, they, and the Italians portrayed that, of course, when he was talking to the judge is how passionate he is. I'm so sorry for you, Judge, because I'm innocent, and you are going to have to live for the rest of your life with the glory of knowing that you put an innocent man to death. Now, judge Gaunt, which I think is an <laughs> awesome name for a judge who's going to absolutely kill the wrong guy. <laughs> and, and the whole thing with the hurdy-gurdy, too, you know, like the whole thing with them dancing under the, uh, the bridge, and then you have the Irish police officer coming up. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's yeah. the, the same. I was like, I just fascinated that he thought that was a good Well, but, but I, your theory. Well, my, my theory is that he liked the stage version in which the Italians are all uh, killed. <laughs> well, and that's true. And, yeah. and, uh, this, and, this, and we know that he disapproved of the tacked-on happy ending. Of the yes, that is correct. He does say So he's he like, ah, the Italians escaping justice again. Darn it! Um, <laughs> Save my Irish. Right. I, I think part of the reason that he wasn't happy with the tacked-on happy ending, too, is because it really kind of destroys the message of the film. Because, you know, You've got Burgess Meredith as this, you know, you've got John Carradine wronged in court. You get Burgess Meredith is trying to fix it, and at the end of the show, he get, you know, at the end of the play, he gets plowed over by the system, represented by gangsters, you know, about six feet into the ground because he's shot with his love interest. But uh, you know, spoilers, by the way. Yeah, yeah sorry. Oh, well, not for the movie. Sorry, sorry. Everyone was going to rush not out and see a revival of Winter Set. Um, <laughs> but the interesting, you know, but they had to change it obviously because this was during the Hayes Code, and so you couldn't have. Well, that was one of the things. Win. Crime can't win. That's it. Justice can't win under the Hayes Code, and so uh, they just pulled the fangs out of this. Yeah, they really story. did. They really did. Now using the hurdy gurdy. Mm -hmm. And then, and then having the having the one guy grab the cigarette and light it, signaling. Can I spoil this for you guys? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He's, the, the head gangster was going to get away with it, but you know this guy lights a cigarette, which is a signal to the gangster's assassin to shoot the next person coming down, and it happens to be the gangster, the the mob boss. So. Justice prevails. It's a bit like Bogart sending um, uh, the guy out the door in the big sleep. You know, next guy out the door is Nick Gun down. It's going to be you, Johnny. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so uh, the movie that we're talking about right now is Winter's Head. It came out in 1936. And I've got a list. And I, like I said, I've got a little slip of paper up here if you're interested in picking them up just to kind of have Or you can go to Donovan Lux's site, hplovecraft.com. Which is exactly where I pulled it. Yep. Yeah. But it, it, has the, uh, it has the 10 that... 
pretend that I sent everybody, but yeah, that's where I pulled it. So lovecraft.com is where you're going to want to go. Just uh, reading that list is not a substitute for this panel. No. We've already mentioned like three movies that are not on. Exactly. <laughs> well, and, and on, the pay, on that website, there are quotes from different letters from Lovecraft talking about these films. It's not enough because he says of the movie Strange Interlude, excellent. That's it. So I don't know <laughs> what, what he really thought, other than he thought it was excellent. Uh, it does star Clark Gable, so maybe he liked her. I don't know. Uh, I've got to tell you, the, uh, the thing, again, that, that, that strikes me about that is, does anybody know what goes on in Strange Interlude? It's a 1932 film. Yeah. And again, this sounds like some pre-Hayes shit. Yeah. Uh, having learned that her husband's family has a history of insanity in it, our wife runs out and has an affair to produce a child that won't have a history of insanity and then doesn't tell husband Clark Gable. Okay? That's... Super effed up for <laughs> now, and, uh, yeah, but it's 1932, so it's cool. But again, it's it's fiction that hits Lovecraft where he lives. Yeah, but because he, yeah. both of his parents died in an insane asylum. Big insane insane yeah. asylum, as a matter of fact, just years yeah. apart. You know, looking at some of these films, I was pretty remembering uh, all these things, like like how much kissing and like you think about uh, All's Quiet on the Western Front, like how intense those films were for back then. Oh yeah, oh yeah. The 1930s? Yeah. I think it's better than every version I've seen up to date, you know. It is still it, it, the most it is nasty, unpleasant. It's long, but it's worth yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> it is still the, 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 if you want some trench warfare, start there. Yeah, Has anyone seen that? Has anyone seen it? If you, it's so good. Oh, it's, yeah. a, it's, the, a, it's the a original one. one it's uh, an experience. Don't go with Henry Thomas, the, you know, or, or I don't know, what's the new one? It's just coming yeah. from, Is it a German production? Oh, I don't know about the new one, but there I was one so. with Harry Tom. Uh, uh, yeah. the one, John, 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 John Boy, yeah. yeah. But yeah, they, that, it's pretty intense. It just, it's amazing where you, they're showing the French, uh, you know, raid the line, and just, they do this loop of machine gun fire over and over, and it, it's, it's, it's pretty intense, and then bodies, and then people pounding each other with the rifles, and this was 1930, and yet it didn't stop what was to come. No. Well, I mean, the one that was to come was started by someone who was in it, so I don't think a movie would have made a difference. <laughs> that, that's true. And it is one that Lovecraft saw repeatedly, again, from HBLovecraft.com. I was glad to see this movie again after four years, and which impressed me even more favorably than in 1930. So we know he saw it more than once. Um, you know, for somebody who at one point thought movies were just a waste of time, that's kind of cool to know that he that he had his favorites. He's like, oh, I'm going to go see that one again. I can't help but notice that most of the films on this list are talkies, and uh, he would have started off seeing, of course, films. I mean, he sees what, uh, what something Derek was doing. Uh, David Garrick from David 1916. Garrick. So he's he's watching films during the silent era. Absolutely. Um, and uh, But most of the things that he's really happy with are the ones that actually uh, have added sound to the story. Well, I... I what happens there, we got a little bit of a, a the light is better under the lamppost situation because J. Vernon Shea only started writing to him in 1931 and J. Vernon Shea is the only one of his correspondents who actually really cared about film. So Lovecraft, uh, you know, by and large was genu genuinely happy to talk about whatever his correspondent wanted to talk about and they always wanted to talk about horror fiction to begin with and often they never got off that or they got onto, you know, uh, barbarism versus civilization, or whatever. Well, so Bob, Bob Howard probably had no movie theaters anywhere near him. Um, cross planes? What do you think? Yeah. <laughs> I feel like that's a big no. There's, there's a big no. Yeah, but um, uh, but Shea was a film buff, and when he and uh, Lovecraft started corresponding, Shea was studying modernist literature 
And so they were talking about, you know, things like All's Quiet on the Western Front, the novel, not necessarily, you know, the film, of the, the film of it. And then that brings them into film, and then they realize they have a common interest. So Lovecraft might have, you know, been, you know, gaga about the silence. We just, he didn't write to the Gelomo about it. Well, we do know that he won $25 for the Image Maker of Thebes, right? It was a, a scathing review. It never got published, but he won the $25. So that, I think, gives an idea of the silent, some of the silent film contempt. <laughs> True. Well, I mean, the, the thing that he would always complain about is if you got a historical detail wrong. Oh, that oh. that threw him out of the film. It made him very mad. Um, and <laughs> so, red. and then so uh, he has a you know. And as a writer, I, I totally get it. He has a attachment to the original novel or script, oh, yeah. whatever it is, and then it feels like doing a movie version is a by definition a betrayal of it. Right. And then he also, with historical epics, nine times out of ten is just mad as a hornet that they got the architecture wrong or whatever else. <laughs> but, but he was quoted to say, right, that he would rather have a, you know, like a, a moderately good film versus a poorly acted drama. Yeah. So, I, you know, I think he preferred to put it all the time. You know, we're talking about, you mentioned David Garrick, and that was directed by Frank Lloyd, and I found it fascinating that there are three Frank yes. Lloyd films yeah. on the list. Uh, David Garrick from 1916, so I'm assuming that one's a silent. Mm -hmm. um, I did not get a chance to see that one. Uh, but Cavalcade from 1933, as well as the Berkeley Square yep. that I mentioned, also from 1933. And I watched both of those prior to, uh, actually I just finished Berkeley Square this morning. Um, and I had never watched it before, even though I, I'd known it was, it loomed large in Lovecraft fandom and all that and all that. We showed, we showed a yeah. print in San Pedro. Though. Exactly, I'm so jealous. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, I, I was saying that before um, the panel started. Yeah. It would have been, it's like I'd love to have seen it on the big screen. Cavalcade starts with basically God Save the Queen. Um, <laughs> and Berkeley Square is about a guy who goes back to his English ancestors, uh, which, big surprise, Lovecraft liked that, you know. Yeah, it's, it's both shut out of time and, um, uh, Charles Lovecraft level rolled into one. Oh, yeah. You know, plus powdered wigs, so that's, you know, he's going to like that. But, uh, and, but I appreciate, oh. And, and Leslie Howard was put on this earth to play a Lovecraft hit there. Right? Oh, <laughs> oh, God. Leslie Howard's fantastic. He's one of my, God, when he's in something, I'm like, I know I'm in for a good show because I do like him a lot. But I loved in that, that film, they, they, he, he talks about time and oh, describes it in a way. Berkeley Square? Yeah, Berkeley Square, I'm sorry. It, 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 he describes it with a river, you know, the journey. Like you're in the boat, right? Yes. And the past is the, well, the maple trees or something. And then oh, yeah. on, the, on the right, you see fields. That's the present. And he's trying to explain it to, you know, to the, uh, the uh, doctor there. And then around the bend is the future. You can't see the future. But if you're in a plane, you're above it all. And it just flashes back to like a with four dimensions. Yeah. So yeah. It, so it's flat, man. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So yeah. It, it was fascinating. And for that time period, I thought that was a pretty heady thing to have in a film. But yeah. One of the things I appreciate about that film as I'm watching it, because I had no idea. You know, I knew what the basic one part of it was, but the fact that he screws up a lot. You know, he's got the journal, he figures everything's gonna be great, but just, you know, his manner of speaking triggers a lot, you know, triggers a lot of people because he's using uh, terms and-, and what, what is this cockeyed, what? Yeah, <laughs> that they're not familiar with. He's talking to people about, you know, he's talking to a, someone painting his portrait about a work he just started as if it's already finished. You know, and that was a really nice way to force him to the conclusion of the film where he has to go back because 
you know, it's clearly a movie where nitpicking the historical details is the plot. Yes. <laughs> the only the only thing I would have liked to have seen is that I would have liked to have seen the seventh the character who was displaced into the present. That yeah. would have been interesting because this river air has. Yeah. What's the one? Uh, he's, he's, this river air has caused me to grow. A, what do you use? A physical. A physical. Yeah. 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 Thank yeah. you, Chris Sarandon, for yeah. that one. Yeah. Because thank you, Dan O'Bannon. <laughs> He's, he's, he's the we get a little bit of a reference from one of the characters as to what was going on from the person in the past holding up in the house because it's like, what the heck? Yeah, what was a fucking nightmare? <laughs> yeah. So you remember um, the mirror, mirror Star Trek. Exactly. Oh, yeah. There is. But in mirror, mirror, you go back to the Enterprise and I'm like, oh, no, I saw them instantly threw them in the brig. What's your problem? <laughs> <laughs> They were obvious monsters. <laughs> it's easier to go back in time knowing what it's supposed to be like and pretend versus going to the future and like be the world. What so, true? I do like that in Ruthless. Obviously, this one. No. Uh, I do like at the beginning when he first gets back there. All of his little mistakes are just like, oh well, it's like that in America. Like his whole pause as well. I'm an American, clearly, because yeah, I love that. But, and the older daughter like had a count. She's, you know, she was counting all the words that he was making mistake right. and proving that he was from Satan or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> possessed or something. Yeah, uh, for, um, it suddenly occurs to me. People in the audience may not have seen oh. Berkeley Square. Real fast. We should talk about it. Leslie Howard uh, plays an American who uh, uh, inherits a house or buys a house right. on Berkeley uh, Square. He inherits it. It's found out that like uh, uh, ancestor designed designs. it or whatever. Right. Yeah. Uh, in, on Berkeley Square in London, goes to take possession, falls in love with the you know antique architecture everywhere, and says, "You could, you should be able to will yourself into the past again." Totally Lovecraftian mm -hmm. vibe. Uh, sure enough, he does. He wills himself into 1784. It's I think like 170-something year to yeah. yeah. And so then uh, he's got the diary of his ancestor, and he says, well, I'm just going to do what the diary says and uh, not screw up time um, because this is not my first rodeo, although it in fact is because, of course, when he meets the girl his ancestor is supposed to marry, he falls in love with her sister, and the whole situation blows out of her what, As you do. Yeah. One, thing I, one thing I did like, and I don't think, you know, he said about the diary, but there's a scene when he first enters the room in the 1700s. He's looking in the pocket where he had the diary when he left mm -hmm. the present time, and there's something else there. So he's kind of like, whoops, lost it. Well, I know, I know what I'm doing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't have pockets. There's no pockets on these breaches. <laughs> but if you think about the case of Charles Dexter Ward, he wrote that about in 27. Yeah. Um, many years before he saw uh, Berkeley Square. And so you look at some of the elements in there, the portrait, you know, the, the, the past coming back forward. You can, imagining him sitting in the theater watching this, I, I can just imagine like him being, you know. And then still not sending it in to get, you know. I didn't know until last night, you know, Ken's telling me, oh no, uh, he never even bothered submitting in case of Charles Dexter yeah, was on publication. Uh, and I'm like, are, are, what? <laughs> Howard, what the? <laughs> That's my reaction too. Like you have the second best novel in the history of horror sitting in your desk drawer while three publishers say, if you had a novel, we could talk. <laughs> yeah. uh, Markley Square starts with the title card and I think this kind of sums it up. How many of us have wished that we might escape from the dull reality of the present into the glamour and romance of yesteryear? Of yesteryear. Ding, 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 ding. 1972. Well, I mean, you know how when uh, someone mentions Cthulhu on like uh, South Park and all your friends 
like tweet you about it. Yeah. You can just imagine everyone Lovecraft knew sending him a letter saying, you have to see Berkeley Square. <laughs> but if we could journey back into the mystery of the past, should we find contentment or unhappiness? And that's, you know, of course, a right. whole thing. And the answer is yes. Yeah, I, I, I really adored that film when I finished watching it this morning before coming out here. I, I adored it. If you haven't seen Berkeley Square, man, some enterprising pirate has put it on YouTube, not that I encourage such things, but uh, it's, it's out there. It's, 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 it's a good print. It's, and um, it, and it, did, uh, it did not inspire uh, no. Charles Dexter Ward being uh, shot five years after it was written, but it did inspire Shadow Out of Time by making him sort of immediately, you know, the, all of his desire to escape time, uh, which has been a constant in his uh, personal uh, uh, belief system forever, you know, and it's reified in this film, and that makes him think, oh, I can treat this in a, in a story. Mm -hmm. And uh, he starts, you know, basically, maybe not right after seeing it, but in early 1934, he's writing to, or is it late 33, that he's writing to Clark Ashton Smith saying, I've got a new story, it's a shadow out of time, it's about ancient Lomar, and they send people to swap your brains, and this, that, and the other, and then he decides to make it even farther past than Lomar. Yeah, one thing that surprised me about uh, Bartlett Square was it, the ending's not what you expect. Yeah. Um, I, I was expecting more of what happened in, I guess, the remake. Even when he uh, goes with, down into that uh, uh, giant ruin in Australia and sees his own diary. That's a different film. That, I, I, I think that's a... Right. Maybe I'm confused. <laughs> Maybe I saw the director's cut. Yeah, that, that, yeah, that, that was the original. <laughs> but, He's trying to lure you in. Yeah. But no, it's, it's, it's a different ending than I expected based on the setup and the cliches around time travel and all that now. It's a bit stark. I know, in a way, but are they cliches in 1930? <laughs> well, maybe they're setting up the, the trope. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. But it was just nice to have, it, have the ending not be what I expected. Well, um, you know, it's, they, they do use, you know, uh, Judeo-Christianity as the means for them to read. You know, have yes. Right. In time. So basically, I don't want to say any more. The, the only other thing that I'd want to say about Cavalcade, the other Frank Lloyd uh, film, was that uh, it starred Una O'Connor in one of the roles, and she is not shrilling her head off like she does in The Invisible Man and Bride of Frankenstein. So that was kind of refreshing. I mean, I, I don't mind her in those films. But it was refreshing to see her not screaming all the time. <laughs> I, I, was, I was surprised. I'm like, is that? Oh, my God. Yeah. I'm like, oh, wow. <laughs> it's like I didn't expect to see her in that. Yeah, Cavalcade is sort of a generational saga about a British upper middle class family. It, 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 I, yeah, I think so. And it begins uh, with the beginning of the Boer War and ends um, in the 30s. Right. So basically Downton Abbey. I, I don't think that they're as exalted as the Downton Abbey people. No, they're, no, not. Often, they're not. But that's the same time period, straight yeah. uh, Now putting the upstairs downstairs kind of coat over that, shade over that is interesting. Okay. Once again, the ending of that got a little dark. Yeah. Uh, because the act of World War One. <laughs> well, no, it was the end of World War One. Yeah. Start of the thirties. Uh, oddly enough the end of the war is no the actors basically well, oddly enough the end of World War One is no less less dark than the beginning. It's all it's all <laughs> well, screwed all the way down. If you if you know the ending to me it was like, you know, the actors actually break the fourth wall. To in a way. They're they're toasting each other, but then they turn to the camera and look and say, you know, here's the Here's their England, you know, they should be prosperous and find peace and all that. And then they have this montage shot of everything coming up in the 40s. And, <laughs> and, it's, and they're still just toasting, looking right at you as if, yeah, 
you know, this is not going to work. <laughs> well, and, and Berkeley Square, they have that too, because right? um, she kind of sees in the future and the horror that she sees a very H.G. Wellesian yeah. um, future with its you know trench warfare, World War One stuff, and so like it all ties together. Yeah, it's all very what uh, uh, things to come. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it would be interesting to see what Lovecraft's response was to that if he saw it. Um, things to come. Things to come. Oh yeah, it's, it's one of the, it, 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 it shocked me as one of the. Well, things that was shocked to me is, is one of the earliest depictions of a post-apocalyptic world with uh, who's Ralph Richardson as the boss, I guess, in, the, in their little tiny hill of people versus plains people world where they've whittled England down to just bare kingdoms around the ruins of cities. Uh, yeah, I would have loved to see what he thought about that. <laughs> yeah, he, I believe, I, I, check me if I'm wrong, but I think he saw King Kong, right? I don't know. And, I don't know. Hey, oh, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I seem to have a vague recollection. Don't don't cite me, but um, I seem to have a vague recollection of him sort of tossing off a mention when he's talking about you know sort of spectacle. Huh. And um, I think that the special effects in Things to Come would have. I mean, he was all about the apocalypse, sure. right? Lovecraft, and the Things to Come apocalypse would have absolutely matched his current fascist politics. Sure. And um, uh, it, uh, excuse me, fascistic socialist politics, <laughs> and um, uh, his, uh, you know, you know, he wouldn't have minded that it changed the Wells novel because again, he had mixed feelings about Wells. So I, I feel like that's that, that's the Lovecraft movie review. Yeah, he would have been. He would have been all I, down. I want to see. He would have been all down with Raymond Massey and his gas of peace. Yep. That they yeah. dump all over everyone at the end of that film. Or yeah. part way through. But there's a lot we don't know because we don't have all the letters, although ST is putting the rest of those volumes together. Um, so we don't know what he did, you know, it's the mm -hmm. King Kong, et cetera. I am, I am going to, again, I pitched this at Ken earlier uh, this weekend. I am going to pitch the idea that uh, Lovecraft, uh, sometime in 1920. Yeah, I was actually going to shoot to that. All so right, no, please, yeah, bring it I'll up. Wait off. No, 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 please. Now? Yeah. All right. Um, now. Now. There's a. Uh, <laughs> Okay, so uh, we all are familiar with the, movie, the uh, story of the temple. At the beginning of the temple, you're on a German U-boat, and the commander is talking about how they're shooting propaganda film on their U-boat uh, with the survivors of the ship that just torpedoed, where they're giving them rations for their surviving on the high seas, and then after the camera's turned off, they take the rations back and machine gun everybody in their lifeboats and then go on being the, you know, the dirty hut, right? Um, there is only one... Uh, actual footage of uh, documentary footage shot on a German U-boat during World War One. There's only one film uh, that was shot during World War One, and it was by it was shot by Lothar Arnaud de la Perrier. How's that for a German U-boat ace? <laughs> Lothar is the number one scoring guy on the planet. No one has ever sunk more ships than he did. He did it all in the Mediterranean and fired a grand total of three torpedoes during his career. Because apparently his unrestricted warfare was to pull beside uh, emergency ships, say, pull over, and then we're gonna check your manifest. I'm sorry, we're gonna have to sink your ship. Please get off the boat while we open the seacocks and the valves and then we use scuttling charges and we set it to the bottom. That's how he ran his war. And on one of his cruises in the Mediterranean, he took a film set with him and shot this silent film that turned up in Germany in 1917, making the rounds of propaganda uh, called The Magic Girdle or The Magic Belt, which I 
I don't know what that's a reference to because I can't, yeah, I, that film is available on the uh, British Imperial War Museum's website. I don't want to know what the German title cards say. However, the film came to the United States in 1920. Oops, the year he wrote The Temple. And in it, there's a whole new set of title cards showing a lot of the same things. They're showing the people on these various merchant ships having to paddle out off their, in their lifeboats to the U-boat. They go through the manifest of the ship. If there's stuff that's gonna be used for war effort, the Germans sink the ship oftentimes with either scuttling charges or sometimes the deck gun. This is the only film that, this, that existed that did this in 1920. And somehow, this made it into a Lovecraft story, and I'm still, my money is still on that maybe Howard saw this in a theater in 1920 and thought, okay, that's a nice touch. And the, and the American title was? The American title was The Log of the U-35, and you can find it on YouTube. It's got, there are multiple titles for it out there. But uh, the one that, uh, the, the, there's like a 26 minute cut of this uh, film that's available and you can find it on YouTube, the log of the U-35. And it's, it's actually a lot of, you will have seen this footage if you've watched a documentary about World War I because this is the only actual combat footage that was ever shot from a U-boat in that time period. So when you're seeing ships sink stern first, you know, on, uh, uh, you know, whatever documentary or whatever history channel show, it's probably Lothar's, it's, it's Lothar's footage. And I, I, I dearly hope that this, that this connection is correct, but we're not, I, I'm not sure how I'm gonna be able to tell, was that print in Providence in 1930? 20. 20, sorry, would it have been in Providence in 1920? I, yeah, I don't know, but it's really creepy how, again, it's parallels. right on the money. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. You sent me the link to that, and yeah. I watched it the other day, and yeah, it is, the similarities are, are strikingly eerie, like you said. It's, it's right there, and, man. And Lovecraft did that all the time. He lifted things from modern of science, particles, news. Sure. Now, for the podcast version of this, I'm going to make sure there's links to everything that we've talked about in the show mm -hmm. notes at monsterkidradio.net. But uh, I don't know how much time we have left, but why don't we... Uh, have, what other films have we got? Uh, what uh, films I was going to mention one thing, just yeah. to get back to the silent. Please. So, um, it was the, he was a big fan of Charlie Chaplin. So, mm -hmm. right? I mean, he, he wrote the, 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 a poem dedicated to Charlie Chaplin. Actually, we were going to put it on the dressing rooms in the green room here at the theater. It nice. never happened, but... Next time. Yeah, That's next cool. time. Um, you just asked me about some of the other movies. I think two of the ones that stood out to me, the fantastical Midsummer Night's Dream, mm -hmm. uh, starring James Kennedy and Nick Powell, which I think is just cool. And, and, and Andy Rooney. Andy Rooney is guys. How cool is that? Uh, and then he also uh, cited 1933's Don Quixote. I'm sorry, Nicky Rooney is Buck. My, my apologies to Andy Rooney. <laughs> you know, I didn't catch that until just now. Now I've got an image. That's bizarre. Yeah. And Don Quixote, he thought was. Yeah, the, the 1933 Don Quixote as well uh, was something else that he had cited. Uh, he said it was a first rate thing he'd seen, uh, first thing he, first rate thing he'd seen since last February. Genuine art from start to finish without a false note. Did we mention Fan on the Opera yet? Uh, I have not brought it up, but... I just bring it up, yeah, he, he kind of, he said he nodded in the first part of it, but then he was riveted that no amount of opiates would have made him fall asleep. Which <laughs> <laughs> so I thought was, a, that was, that was great. Well then, all right, Mr. Lovecraft. Yeah. Oh, that's high praise. 
Uh, what was the, um, I'm sorry to forget the title of the uh, Charles Lawton one. I, guess. Ah. Another, uh, I think it was another Lloyd. The Barretts of Wimpole Street. Yeah, the Barretts of Wimpole Street. Yeah, that, that. It's a historical film about Robert uh, Browning and Elizabeth Barrett Browning. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, with, uh, uh, with, with major changes from the play. Apparently. Sure. Um, the, the line I, I came up with uh, was, was, was looking online was apparently they they toned down the implication that the reason that Charles Lawton won't uh, let any of his daughters marry is because he's got uh, he's got an eye for them, <laughs> and uh, that was in the play. And they like, well, that we're not gonna we're not even gonna touch that. Mm-hmm. Don't even, you can't bring that up. And Lawton's response was, they made me not be able, I may not be able to say it, but they can't stop me from leering at the other actresses. <laughs> can't stop me from acting. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which seemed like, again, uh, a, a weird uh, uh, story for him to latch on to this tyrannical father. Um, I mean, because he has an absent one. He has, a, he has yeah, no father. That's true. Uh, I, I, I think it was less the love element and when you say, we t- we're moving the love element from the story of Robert and Elizabeth Barrett Browning. Uh, you're going to get to what's left. Uh, well, what's left is the Victorian atmosphere, which he did praise. And again, yes. uh, in the same way that he doesn't care as much about H.G. Wells, he doesn't really care that much about the Victorian era. So the fact that they got it mostly right was good enough for him. He wouldn't have been nitpicking it as if it were a Georgian film. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, any thoughts, questions, anything like that as we start wrapping up? Yes, sir. Yeah, you alluded to uh, Lovecraft's questionable feelings about Wells. What was his objection to H.G. Wells? I, I don't know. Um, he just doesn't, I mean, he doesn't mention Wells an awful lot, and whatever he does, it's usually dismissive. Like, he refers to uh, War of the Worlds as a semi-classic. So it's very passive-aggressive. Um, <laughs> I, think, I think there may be some uh, irritation that uh, Wells is taking um, you know, a, a great gift for, uh, similar to his objection to Chambers, right? That he takes this great gift for horror and then turns it into preaching, in Wells' yeah. case, instead of... And of course, up until 1930, Lovecraft and Wells would have been political polar opposites. So he would have been mad as a hornet about Wells being a socialist. Um, and then it, it's only much later that, that he swaps around. Uh, the Depression basically does that. So what are, it's amazing how being poor will suddenly uh, move your politics. And well, <laughs> again, the, the 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 adjective fascistic always has to stay in there. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, uh, so the so so I don't know that he you know necessarily is uh, contemptuous of Wells, but I, he's never gives him the praise that you would think the other great pioneer of cosmic horror would deserve from him. Right. Yeah. Another question yeah. along those lines. Uh, the movie, uh, what was it, The Island of Lost Souls? Mm-hmm. With, with uh, Charles Long. Charles Long again. That's right. Which yeah. is going to be showing here at the Hollywood Theater next weekend, just so you know. Really? Uh, oh, there cut out. Any yeah. comment by uh, Lovecraft on that? I haven't, I haven't seen it, if there is one. I, yeah, I'm not aware. Okay. Thank you. Sorry. Uh, we just <laughs> wish. <Yeah. laughs> right? We wish there was. Sure, S.T. was here the other day. Hey there. Are you here? No? Okay. I yeah, just wonder, is he's just more letters, yeah. and so they ask him if there's anything else that's there. There's more stuff in the indexes. Yeah. Um, I don't know when they're going to kick us out of here. I think there's another panel coming in at 2, I believe. So we've got about 10 minutes until then. Any other final thoughts or anything? Yeah. Anybody else? Out there or up here? 
So how, how much did it cost to make the movies in the that's a really good question. Um, it depended on what theater. Uh, the Bijou, uh, which is the sort of place that David Hayden suspects that Lovecraft worked, um, you had a dime seats or you had 35 cent seats. And so uh, Lovecraft would have obviously gone to the dime seat once. Um, or I strongly suspect it would have been a situation where he would go with a friend and the friend would pick up the dime, right? Um, I mean, we've all been there. Uh, you know, you're, you're, you're short, the payday was, you know, three weeks ago, but you really have to go see Spider-Man or whatever the hell. You could have beans to buy. You know. Yeah, so um, it, uh, it, it was not uh, particularly expensive. I mean, the price of a movie ticket has risen faster than inflation. Um, oh, yes. But it was still, you know, a dime would have been a real cost to him. Anybody else? On the other hand, when you went, you would see like four movies. Yeah, there's that. Too. I mean, you would you would get the uh, A picture, the B picture, the short, and the newsreel or the cartoon. Yeah, it was so, it was an it was an event. It was a it was a good time. Good experience. Yeah, certainly more affordable than today. Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. And the popcorn was absolutely cheap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good point. Anybody else up here? Uh, I, think, I think so. I guess he's. It's hard, I've got a light right oh, here. Oh, yeah, there you go. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I remember somewhere in Lovecraft Letters, you mentioned the seeing Chris Long needle-looming leads from the early 20s. Could be incorrect about that, but you know, besides the classic expressionist films, like I didn't hear what he you missed. Missed. Yeah, He missed that one. He, and he, I think he writes somewhere he regretted not being able to see that because uh, he's heard from all accounts that it was an amazing uh, production, but he didn't get to see it. I would love to know what he thought about things like Metropolis and things like or that. Or Nosferatu. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, um, oh, wow. Yeah. Now, is but the cabinet, does David Lynch have I don't know played in America while he was alive, though. I was about to say. I, I don't think it did because yeah. uh, of the legal battle with us. Uh, Still wasn't cool to know what he thought about. Well, no, Nosferatu absolutely played in America because Americans were like, foreign copyright. Go blow. <laughs> we were the we were China back then. Well, I, I I think what ended up happening, if I remember right, is the copies were destroyed, but there was one that was circulating around America, and it was shown for film groups, I believe. The the copies were destroyed is something that they told Mrs. Stoker's lawyers. Yeah. The copies yeah. were not destroyed. Oh. It played commercially in New York in 1930. Oh, okay. <laughs> there are ads you can see in the yeah, New York. Yeah, there's still internet back there to kind of set up Google alert. Like, hey, show my movie. No. <laughs> Maybe I'm. I mean, there was a there was a sort of a because they did find that really good print in Argentina. There was sort of a, a, a this is the Nosferatu panel suddenly. Um, <laughs> uh, there, there's sort of a, a, myth, a self mythologizing narrative that all the copies were gone because it's a better story if Florence Stoker destroys all the copies except one. In fact, she destroyed all the copies in Germany, which is, of course, all that mattered to her now, um, yeah. and most of the ones in England. Uh, but every other country, she'd have to pay other lawyers. And her lawyers didn't want to pay for it. Uh, Prana Films had no money to pay for it. So if you write to Universal or whoever had the rights to distribute, or whatever company it was, had the rights to distribute Nosferatu, and you said, destroy your copies, and they say no, yeah. <laughs> you know, the Florence didn't have the money. Uh, uh, the uh, I think the playwrights union that she was doing a lot of this action yeah, through didn't have uh, the money or the interest. It just um, sort of 
uh, you know, fell between the, the, the stools a little bit. Mm -hmm. what about but it does make a better story if there's only one copy left. <laughs> it does. Yeah. Well, yeah. What about Nyarlathotep? Is he the most original cosmic horror projectionist? Yes, um, yes yeah, Nyarlathotep sure. definitely is the filmiest, in the sense of most about film, of uh, Lovecraft stories. And it is uh, interesting when you talk about you know the notion that silent films exist to destroy time. Uh, to some extent, <laughs> Nyarlathotep is doing that as well. He's collapsing time and space, time from the present to the far future when Providence is under the green sky and. Uh, you know, Orientals are playing jazz on the corner and all the other horrible <laughs> things. Um, uh, the, Dogs and cats. The, the, the signal the the, uh, the apocalypse are happening. You know, the the, the trains are all uh, covered with snow and things like that. Uh, and so, uh, Nyarlathotep has been portrayed as an electrical showman, uh, I think, because yeah. everyone's in love with Will Murray's theory that it's a Nikola Tesla reference. But it could also absolutely be a reference to just going to see a movie and being blown away. That's, um, what, that's what I thought. And it, and it, and it, it, it uh, does not explicitly say projector, but it does say thrown upon a screen over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. um, so that does imply, at the very least, we're talking magic lantern slides where people would come back and say, I'm going to show you instructive views of the Holy Land because I was just over there. You mean porn? That's for the later show. Oh. <laughs> there's a matinee and then there's a later show. The ten cent seats. Those are the major change your name from the major to the empire. Or, or so you're saying right. the ten cent seats got the uh, newsreel, and the thirty five cent seats got the porn. Exactly. Okay. Um, and then and the Bijou, in fact, did show um, uh, risque movies. Yeah. It did not show pornography, no. but it did show movies that other theaters in Providence would not touch, which is a sign. As, as, as then as now, that the theater is actually losing money because it's trying everything it can to draw in an audience, which is why when it got bought by the new guy and changed to the Empire, they fired all the old people, which is why David Hayden thinks maybe that's why Lovecraft had an in and could get that uh, job as a ticket taker. So the more you know, yeah. the more you go insane. The more you obsessively research <laughs> Providence, Rhode Island movie theaters, add it to David Hayden, for God's sake. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I want to thank all of y'all for doing this. Uh, thank this, you. This was all Thanks kind of thrown together uh, in, in a kind of a slapdash fashion, and, and uh, I really appreciate everybody kind of stepping up and showing up. So thank you to Chris, Andrew, Ken, and Scott here. Hands to these guys, huh? I do appreciate this. One of my favorite things to do is to talk about movies, and especially classic films. So I have people that are as passionate about it and know things about it that I don't, and vice versa. It's just, it's a real treat. So I, I do appreciate all of you being here. And I appreciate all of you coming here to this as well. This was kind of, uh, the, the panel idea that I pitched to Gwen, um, I didn't know if it would fly. I had a good time chatting, so I think it flew. But uh, well, I, I yeah, hope you enjoyed it too. And, and absolutely, um, anyone, watching here or on the internet or wherever, if you're not listening to Derek's podcast, Monster Kid Radio, listen to Derek's <laughs> podcast, Monster Kid Radio, not just the two uh, so far that he's had me on for, but all the episodes are all, I've only done two, Derek, and yes, I do feel that. You know, I don't think I've had Scott on proper at all, or Andrew, really. I mean, I might have interviewed you once. You know what, I, I, don't, I don't really he care really about Scott or Andrew. He really doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> but like, okay. 
I'll make it official in front of all these people. You all have an open invitation to come on the show proper, pick a movie, pick a time. But seriously, it's, 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 it's an amazing ride. Uh, uh, Derek usually spends longer than the movie is talking about it. True. Real deep dive, real drill down. You know, movies that you just dismissed as a thing to watch, you know, when you're high, suddenly <laughs> uh, there's levels and layers. Even movies that objectively are kind of terrible, they've still got a meaning and a place in the art form and the history of the genre, and Derek is better positioned than 99% of people who talk I, movies. I immediately did the mask of Fu Manchu with Boris Karloff. I don't think I've talked about that yet. Let's Thank goodness. Let's make it happen. All right. All right, All right Thank guys. You, everyone. Thank, Thank you everyone. for being here. Yeah. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. I really appreciate everybody's support of the podcast over the years. We've been going for quite some time, 593 episodes as of this recording. That does not include the few specials that we did over the years. We haven't done one of those in a while, but if I go and added it up, I, I don't know. I would love to know how many hours of Monster Kid Radio there are out there. So if there's anybody out there that's really, really bored and wants to spend some intimate time with their calculator, I'd be real curious to know how many hours of Monster Kid Radio and related content exists out in the world. You know, there's a lot going on in my personal life right now. I'm working two jobs. I've mentioned this repeatedly. Trying to find a third job or, or a replacement job. I don't know. I'm, I'm, in, I'm interviewing. If anybody knows of any good uh, work-from-home jobs, you know, I'm, I'm all ears, man. I would love to make a little bit more money than I'm making now. And, and yeah. Anyway, I'm busy is what I'm getting at. There's a lot of changes happening. I've had a lot of changes happen to me over the years on Monster Kid Radio. You know, the divorce, the moving from Beaverton, Oregon to Vancouver, Washington, finding an incredible relationship with Beth. Just all sorts of things have happened over the years. And the one constant has been the monsters and by extension has been you. So thank you so much. I really appreciate all of you and all of your support. A number of you have reached out to me over the years, just checking in to see how I'm doing. And it means a lot. I don't always respond, but do know that I get all of your messages and it, it touches me. It thrills me. I grin every time I hear from somebody because I know that a lot of times with podcasting and YouTubing and internet platforms, social media stuff, it's real easy to form what is sometimes referred to as a parasocial relationship. What does that mean? Basically, a parasocial relationship is a one-sided relationship where one person feels like they have a connection and, and a real relationship with somebody else who is probably not even aware of their existence. Happens a lot with YouTubers in particular, but I can see it happening with podcasters and writers and musicians and things like that. I hope that I never give you the impression that I'm not interested in hearing about you and what you're up to. When I was at the Lovecraft Film Festival, I was standing in line outside the theater waiting to go in. I was wearing a mask, so half of my face is already covered. And over the years, I've gone to the Lovecraft Film Festival with a full head of hair. This, actually, now that I think about it, is this the first time I've gone to the Lovecraft Film Festival with a shaved head? It might be. It's not the first time I've gone with a beard, but you'd only see half of it because of the, the mask. Anyway, I'm standing there in line and I'm wearing the uh, Monster Kid Radio monster lobby card movie poster collage Hawaiian shirt that I have available for sale 
which will be available for sale via Etsy probably within the next two weeks. I hope. Fingers and tentacles crossed if I can figure out how to make that tech work. Anyway, I'm wearing that shirt. There's some dudes behind me. Gregor, by the way, more than just some dude, I suppose, makes a comment about the shirt. And I turn around and, you know, I say hello and I thank him. And he's like, Derek? And we ended up talking for a little bit. He remembered seeing me on a panel several years ago called Lovecraft Gets Hammered, where we talked about hammer films uh, that have a Lovecraftian element or influence potentially in them. And honestly, Gregor, if you're listening, forgive me. I don't remember talking with you back then, but I certainly remember talking with you this time around because we ended up talking about Hammer films, what some of his favorite Hammer films are. He remembered the 1951 Downplace podcast, all because he recognized my voice. And I thought that was pretty cool. So I was really excited to talk to Gregor and hear about what some of his favorite movies are. And Gregor, I cannot disagree with you at all. I cannot agree with you anymore. Dracula AD 72 and Satanic Rites of Dracula do not get enough credit. Oh, so good. There was somebody else there, and forgive me, I didn't get her name, but uh, she engaged with me a couple of times over the festival as well, and we were talking and talking about films and all that she came to my panel and we talked after the panel as well and you know that's what i enjoy the most about monster kid radio yes i have met a number of celebrities or celebrities descendants because of monster kid radio but the best part of this podcast is connecting with you so thank you You've been a constant in my life, and while I am looking to make some changes in 2023 regarding what happens with the whole Monster Kid Radio thing, and I include the stream in that, the podcast I don't see going anywhere, and that's your fault. (laughs) It's your fault because I love doing it so much. Will things change? Sure. The podcast has changed from the very beginning. Of course it will. But the podcast isn't going anywhere. And I feel like I wanted to share that with you because I have said in a number of places online, in forums, in person, that we're going to be making some changes to the show. But the podcast is still solid and it's not going anywhere because of you. So thank you. Thank you for giving me this gift. I hope I can give you something back every week with the podcast. I have had a number of people reach out to me to ask me if there's anything special coming up for the podcast because... Sometime, I don't think it'd be, I'd have to look at the calendar and math is hard and I've only had one cup of coffee today. By the end of the year, we'll have hit 600 episodes. I'm not sure where it would land. Let's see. Four, five, six, seven. Yeah, I'll do the math later. Episode 600 is coming up and I have no plans to do anything special, but maybe we should. What should we do for episode 600? I'm open. I'm all ears. Let me hear your suggestions at monsterkidradio at gmail.com or post them over on our Facebook page or Facebook group, just look up Monster Kid Radio, or on Twitter. Again, look up Monster Kid Radio. Yes, we have a Monster Kid Radio Reddit and Discord. Not a lot of activity over there, and that's kind of my fault. It's kind of a full-time job that I'm trying to seek in between various jobs to do all the social media stuff. Maybe we need some moderators. Maybe that's part of the expansion and change and evolution of Monster Kid Radio. We need to have somebody who is able to dedicate time to keeping Discord moving and doing something on that platform or doing something on the Monster Kid Radio Reddit. That would be amazing, in fact. Can I pay you anything to do it? Absolutely not. I'm not able to pay myself to do any of this stuff, but 
if you are interested in this sort of thing, I would love the assist. Again, you can reach out to me at monsterkidradio at gmail.com, or you can call and leave us a voicemail as well. Uh, we do have a voicemail number set up at 360-524-2484. I'm still working at The Haunt, still taking tickets at the ticket booth at Scaregrounds PDX. If you are interested in checking out what I'm going to go ahead, I'm just going to say it. I'm just going to flat out say it. Scaregrounds PDX is the Pacific Northwest's premier haunted house. I'll say that. I'll say it. Monster Kid Radio definitely approves. And not just because I'm working there, and not just because the woman I love is one of the managers. It is truly an immersive, amazing experience. And if you are interested in going and saving a couple bucks on your ticket, go to tinyurl.com slash mkrscaregrounds. And again, make sure you let them know that you heard about them here on Monster Kid Radio. What's coming up next week on the show? I'm not 100% sure. I really need to just reach out to Steve and schedule that House of Dracula conversation with him. I'd like to have him on the show. And I did firm this up. Andrew Migliori will be on a future episode of Monster Kid Radio in which we talk about the Quatermass films. I'm not sure if we're going to do all three or just Quatermass in the pit. I just know that he's a huge Quatermass fan. So we're going to talk about one of the Quatermass films. Also, Scott Glancy, we're going to have him on the show. We're going to talk about a Boris Karloff film. A Boris Karloff film that doesn't necessarily have a traditional monster in it, although the yellow face might be considered monstrous. We're going to talk about The Mask of Fu Manchu, starring Boris Karloff with Scott Glancy. So that'll be fun as well. Now, I don't have a topic set up with Ken Height yet, but there will be a Ken Height episode coming up in the near future. And it's been way too long since I've had Chris McMillan on the show as well. Also, David Heath, the man whose panel I had to bail on because I had a job interview, uh, will be on the show as well in the future. We're going to talk about something Robert E. Howard related. I have mentioned that I wanted to do more Robert E. Howard content on the podcast. I've had some suggestions that we do it like a beta capsule review segment. I don't know if that's really the answer. I don't know if well, okay, actually, I take it back. I do know that doing a separate spinoff podcast is not in the cards right now. It just is not feasible. Unless I were to set up like a Kickstarter or something to help finance the amount of time and energy it would take to do it the way that I want to. I don't see that happening in the future. But there will be some more Robert E. Howard content coming up just because I love me some Robert E. Howard. And, you know, I'm really starting to settle into the idea that it is time. It is really time to focus my writing career, <laughs> career, uh, to focus on my writing a little bit more. And whenever I get into that mindset, my brain always goes to Robert E. Howard because the man's work inspires me so much. You know, I have been getting rid of a lot of my Lovecraft books and my Lovecraft ephemera and studies and things like that. I'll never get rid of my Robert E. Howard stuff. I'll always hold on to my Robert E. Howard zines and letters and everything else because just the man's work has influenced me in such a deep and profound way. And I want to include that somehow in Monster Kid Radio or express that in a podcast. We'll see. Also, I mentioned it earlier, I do have my writing YouTube channel up and running now. I think what's going to happen is there's going to be weekly updates regarding my writing progress and journey. Just look up Monster Kid Writer over on YouTube or go to monsterkidwriter.com. That website hasn't been updated in a while, but there is a link to the YouTube channel there. And I think maybe once a month, I'm going to try to start doing some significant updates on that website as well. Of course, big thanks to Scott Morris, who is kind of sort of the 
I don't know if I'd call him the webmaster, but he definitely has made it possible for me to have the URL and has kind of guided me a little bit with the WordPress side of things. So huge thanks to Scott, who also needs to be on the show in the near future. And I've got Tracy Morris lined up as well, speaking of Scott's other half. And speaking of Scott and Tracy and a whole bunch of my other friends, this weekend is Monster Bash. Huge shout out to every one of my friends that are out at Monster Bash right now. Have a great time. Have a little extra bit of fun just for me. Just, I don't know, maybe set like five minutes aside to get your Derek on just so that I can live vicariously through you because I can't be there. But, but only five minutes. I, I don't want you to, you know, miss out for yourself. I'm really thrilled for this year's Monster Bash because Terry Mount from That's Terry Riffic is getting married at Monster Bash. How exciting is that? Congratulations to Terry. Much love to you and your beloved Tom. I wish you nothing but the best and love you guys. I've never even met Tom, but you know, Terry's a great judge of character. I mean, she likes me for crying out loud. So, you know, <laughs> what am I saying? I'm saying it's time to wrap up the show. Let's go ahead and wind up by letting you know that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content to Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Banshee Bop. That comes to us courtesy of High Tide Recordings and the Surfer Jets. The Surfer Jets is an awesome surf band based out of Toronto, Ontario. I love them. I love what they do. I'm a huge fan of what they do, and I am surprised that I haven't played more of them in the past. Check out their new single, Banshee Bop, over at thesurferjets.bandcamp.com. Also, you can find them on High Tide Recordings. I know they're also on Facebook. Check out this new single for $2 and let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you. My name is Derek M. Cook. I'll talk to everybody next week. Ciao.